0: Uh, hello, welcome to Fall Out Podcast. It's a, um, an unusual and special edition today. We're going to be looking at uh, Bricks' book, The Rise, The Fall and The Rise by Bricks Start Smith. And it's just me and special guest Danny No, who was with us for the last book review when we read renegade. Um, and he's back for more. Morning, Danny. Yeah, How are you can't doing? Can't put me off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine, thanks.
0: How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm not too bad. It's good that you um, were able to get through to the end. I think Alistair hopefully was join us. is having technical troubles, but the rest of them lightweights. They uh, decided oh. one book a year was enough for them. So uh, <laughs> we'll crack on. We'll have um, we'll have a chat about the three sections of the book. She divides it into the rise and then the fall and then the rise. And we'll intersperse it, I guess, with a few. Of her tunes along the way, but uh, any initial thoughts before we get cracking, now?
1: Yeah, I I I like Bricks. A lot of people are really big fans of her. Think she brought you know a pop edge to the fall that it otherwise lacked. I'm not sure it's entirely true, but she brought something that was different. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of her music, but I appreciate what she did in the fall, and I like her as a person. I think she's a curious character. Definitely, I don't share her worldview of supernaturalism and Californian therapy and. Uh, mixed in with karate kind of moves it's, it's she's a really interesting edgy mix of bizarre kind of nonsense and hard-edged I, I really do like
0: a lot of her stuff you uh, I had a good listen again to bricks and the extricated stuff and there's some really nice th- things on there I'll play a little bit of that later but I thought maybe it'd start by playing their version of LA because I think one of the things she did when she restarted um, working with Handlers in, in 2017 is they revisited some of the fall songs that I guess she'd written and, and hadn't necessarily got to play for a long time, in some cases never. So let's start off with her version of LA and then we'll we'll jump into the book. I think a good place to start given that um she was an la child she starts her book by talking about a story where her grandmother drives them to disneyland and is obviously having uh some sort of episode almost drives them into uh one of the water attractions there which uh, seems like a horrific story but it's probably good to touch on this right now she she does talk a lot about childhood trauma family trauma and abuse al- along the way and to that but it's an important part of her story and the idea that she is uh, very privileged but that doesn't mean that it is an easy path through life so she starts off with some quotes of uh, listen to your gut instinct it's about the journey not the end two minds are better than one speak without a filter Nothing is better than something that is bad, and this too shall pass. Danny, as we launch into it, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, there's some wisdom there, isn't there? This too will pass, that's uh, true. Disneyland thing is interesting as well, isn't it? because she begins with it. And Disneyland, Disney World comes up several times through the book. It's a place where strange, weird and horrible things happen to her. It's it's a theme park, which is a bit like I was saying about her own character, where she's a curious mix of things. And Disneyland seems to be the same for her. It's this scene of strangeness and death, but also of pleasure and the kind of dangerous car journey thing is sets off the tone of the book really i think that beautiful bright
0: sunny bubbly character but underneath there there is trouble there is torment and and and, yeah disney specifically comes back through not least of all disney's dream debased which we will get to at some point before she starts that the general story of her childhood she talks a, a little bit i guess of setting the scene specifically talking about her relationship with with mark which is Interestingly, at the core of a lot of what happens, but doesn't make up a huge part of the book, she does make the case that her life has been not just these things that we know her for, not just uh, my mum knows her is from Rock's fashion fix. And I know her from the fall but she's so much more than that and so and it is um all part of her character and it all is reflected in what she brought to the fall so i think she talks a little bit about the shared energy that she had with mark she goes a little bit into the writing process which is interesting because she doesn't touch on that much in the rest of the book but she said she'd write a song mark's pacing around after having a little bit of the old uh, wake up juice and he would grunt and reach into his pile of lyrics and pull out the perfect lyric and there. they'd run through it five or six times he put it on the dictaphone and then that was it the next morning they get up drink some strong tea get over the um whiskey from the night before head off to the practice room play the tape once for the lads and mark would go to the pub and that would be it that that's the song written in a nutshell morning
2: alistair morning mr brendan I
1: um, hello Dan, do you want to add anything? I just thought, right at the outset, her family is quite interesting, I think, the the biological father in particular. Her grandfather was an escapee escapee from anti-Semitism in Russia, came to America, so she has a Jewish background. Her father, Steve Selinger, he was a Beverly Hills psychiatrist, and she describes him as mentally unbalanced and troubled and a mercurial genius and a master of manipulation with an incredibly rich imagination. And throughout the book, he recurs as this difficult presence in her life appearing and disappearing and some violent moments with him and she connects him with some of her relationships including Mark but also Nigel Kennedy where she kind of sees the, sees her father in them as character her current marriage the relationship at the end with Philip start she sees as an escape from that pattern with there's several overarching themes there's a escaping from her father theme to the book as well in the end she talks about being adopted by Marvin who's who's her, her mum's um, later partner. So so you can see several themes crop up at the beginning and carry on throughout and a resolved or not at the end.
2: The, the sort of dad is a problematic, troubled adult phrase stuck out to me, along with the Disney stuff. It's a theme for a lot of the book about their relationship and with men, with certain types of men. The Disney story with, with grandma, there's no resolution to it. Uh, but it, yeah, it did send a bit of an interesting uh, trip out to Disney World, that one.
0: Yeah, I guess it's setting the scene that a lot of the people she trusted as a child, she couldn't really rely on them for maybe they loved her, or maybe the relationship wasn't so positive, yeah. but she definitely couldn't rely on many people. The rootlessness. It's something that comes back.
2: It comes, she came from like a really privileged background, which is something that you know you kind of when you get later on in, into the bucket that like the all the the shock of moving to Manchester, no bulbs and all that crap. Oh, that really must have been really because it was a completely different world. But yeah, let's crack on, Brendan. Let's crack on.
0: All right. So she she then goes into I guess but more standard kind of biographical stuff. So her name, Laura Elise Salinger, it's 1962. So what that would make her six sixty at this point, right? Just over 60. Her mom and dad divorced when she was quite young. Mom was was originally a fashion model, then worked at a brokerage firm and eventually went on to work in kind of television and behind the scenes. She talks a lot about L.A. and the kind of culture and the, the, the fact that it's full of desperate people. And it is this kind of Hollywood Babylon kind of thing where underneath the surface there is this kind of darkness she got a one string banjo at the age of five that was her introduction to kind of music her, her background allowed her to to have you know she had a bunch of ponies and horses and those those were her friends she said when she was growing up but uh, yeah alongside that this, her father was this uh kind of really troubled Person and um, he would walk around with his bull's head penis and collect guns. And she said she was a tomboy to please her father. And then there was this really sad story. I think it was a pony who who kind of ruined a party and then oh yeah wasn't around much uh, after that. Sadly, and so all of those kind of like a lot of the stories end with it with this
1: kind of a, like sad twist or undercurrent. Dan, just on the horse story, this was a horse called Smoky. Apparently, who she describes in the book as a nasty, evil, angry troll of a Shetland pony, yeah. <laughs> which is which is one of the many hilarious phrases. Um, and apparently, startled by a helicopter, ran a mock at a party. And and I I didn't read it as the the horse being killed. She she says um, Smokey was nowhere to be seen. Then something caught my eye, a small reddish brown patch. I realized it was Smoky's blood. It has soaked into the ashen ground of the corral. In the middle of the pool of blood were Smoky's testicles, sad grey gelatinous sacks. Okay. Already starting to shrivel in the shimmering, relentless heat of the soporific California. Son, so I think they gelded the horse, they didn't shoot it. Okay, so Smoky got off lightly, relatively <laughs> lightly.
2: Yeah, yeah, well, I wouldn't be volunteering for either of them, really. But um, <laughs> Mexabit killing slugs, a tortoise called Peanut that, that ran off. The, there's lots of animal stories in here, isn't there? She, she's sort of like all, all creatures, great and small, from uh, crazy Shetland ponies to uh, sorry tortoises to pugs, kind of come into it later. And there seems to be kind of like some kind of stability in her life where it's like she can't really rely on Pete, but yeah, she, she, she does go into the, like the, the, the early days. Re- writing process and it mentions it as an uh, oral orgasm which kind of reminded me of uh, the charlie fm thing uh, coming in your ears technically t that gets her mentioned you know proper sophisticated northern shit there's a few
1: other bits in in these early sections that i think say something about her writing i I think her writing is worth commenting on because she seems to have written this herself could have done with a little bit of editing and I think, but I think it's a bit uneven as a book. I think the style doesn't, it's a bit tonally all over the place. So I particularly found this first section of the book really quite funny in many ways, and in ways that later sections of the book weren't. I quoted the bit about the the angry troll of the Shetland pony, which just is funny as a phrase. And there's a bit, there's a little episode where she talks about catching salmonella from her pet turtles, because um, she kissed their tiny heads repeatedly <laughs> She writes, I I think um, Alistair's comment about the pets being stable, she was an only child and I wonder if the pets were kind of a constant relationship for her. But there's all kinds of weird, horrible mixed metaphors in the book occasion. There's an early one where she describes L.A. being full of desperate people trying to make it in the entertainment industry. You can feel their crushed dreams raining down like the confetti from a busted piñata. They hover and waft through the air. They (laughs) drift like a fog. And, And you just kind of think, yeah, you've not quite got the the imagery right there and and then she talks about um, there's another sentence i picked out just cuz i thought it was funny along with guns clocks and vicious dogs one of my father's other fixations with banjos you, the, the sentences like that I just think are terrific <laughs> she kind of runs out of them later on in the book but this early part in particular I just thought some of this is, if marquis Smith had been writing like this, you know, we'd all say what amazing kind of sentences they were and I think they get overlooked, particularly this first section of the book is just funny but she's actually got a it's just that weird kind of edginess to what she's talking about, it isn't all LA sunlight at all, there's a there's a bit of, there's something grinding against it there as well isn't there?
0: Yeah, this first part where she's talking about her childhood, I agree. It's fun to read. It's not all good times, but the, but she she writes with a lot of heart. Clearly, like you say, she, if she wrote it herself, which it seems she did, then it's really a passion project. And at the end, she does talk about how difficult it was and and how proud she was to have finished the book. So, cool uh, achievement,
2: Al. So Dan mentioned the sort of like the, the writing of it, the way it's kind of been put together, and at the end of it, I did notice he mentioned the, uh, the Viv Albertine book, uh, which. What's very good I should go read it And then give it to somebody Who also thought It was bloody brilliant Viv Albertine book Was kind of like Dead kind of cut and paste. And it was building up But like from different eras as, as it goes along Some really unexpected moments In that book And, it, and it, like some really Fucked up shit Like yeah I, I think it, it, they're going For a similar kind of style As you said There's some brilliant phrases In there
1: the other constant throughout this book is her bulimia she talks about early on and carries on throughout and there's a sentence in there where she says my life is splattered with vomiting stories which is another of those sentences I just think characterizes the book obviously the the bulimia is a serious issue for her throughout her life we we ought to just mention the bit about her grandparents as well Uh, Oscar Selinger her grandfather the one who escaped from uh, Russia and they spoke Yiddish there's a bit in her book where she says she was never never entirely clear what it was he did for a living Hmm. and she talks about him being in Property and owning some baseball clubs, and I did some research a while ago in the newspapers, and there's quite a bit about him owning these baseball clubs in the American newspapers. And it, it seems a car wash company and all this kind of stuff is is really interesting. Um, so he he was clearly uh, he'd made he'd made his money. She kind of makes it out to be a big mystery, but I, I I'm not sure it was. I think he made his money early on.
0: Yeah, they mentioned yeah that he was he's a lawyer and he cornered the the sugar market and spend some time with Martin Luther King, which he doesn't go into, but uh, clearly a a very interesting and um, I imagine really influential, especially that the story of him kind of figure in her life. So we kind of get onto those themes in the next part of the, the book. So yeah, she she talks about the beginnings of her bulimia and, and she drops that in all the way through during the time in the fall and, and after when she talks about slipping into periods of depression. It, this is something that clearly a huge but yeah she taught this it's clearly something that was very, very um a real challenge for her all the way through her life. And um she doesn't necessarily go into it. She she, talks...
2: she does try. She does try, uh, sort of like putting a a funny spin on it, though. I mean, like calling the chapter "interview with a vampire." Um, so she just try and make a bit of a joke out of it. But you know, it's not a funny thing, is it? Really, like you know?
1: No, it's, it's not. No, no. I mean, I, I, of all the things that are really um, disturbing that she talks about, that's the one where you get the sense that she has to live with it, and I suppose. If you have to live with it, then you have to you have to deal with it as best you can, and being matter of fact about it is clearly her way.
0: Yeah, she she then talks yeah about Sunset Boulevard and spending a lot of time with with her grandparents, particularly because her, um that relationship with her with her father was uh, very difficult. I like the bit where she talks about in a pink mansion and next door there's a rock star called Jim with a washing line now it's too it's obviously too on the nose to for it to be Jim Morrison uh hanging out his knickers so I and I didn't do the research and find out if, if we could nail down who that next door person was it did occur to me to try but I haven't there's a few of these where I did have a bit of a look but yeah I don't know how you would even nail down who was living in, in there
1: oh I I'm, I'm going to try now. This this is a challenge.
0: Please do. And uh, yeah. It <laughs> of could course, you may not be using the guy's right name, of course. But... Exactly. You know, so the one thing that starts to come up now is that rootlessness kind of idea, which she does talk about a lot as a child, but she continues to move very regularly as an adult, but doesn't come back to that theme too much. I wondered towards the end whether... She'd kind of been a little bit more okay with that nomadic mindset a little bit as she gets older, but clearly as a child she's moving around a lot because very soon she she's taken from LA over to Chicago where
2: her mum moves in with her, her new husband I mean, Marvin. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, like that's when she starts getting into like the. Uh... Haunted psyche shit, um, which, again, is another thing like, that goes on throughout the book, which, you know, was, was kind of interesting, you know, in sort of with what's been said about uh, Mr. Smith and how, you know, he, he had certain abilities. I think she refers to him as a warlock and a witch later on in the book somewhere. But, yeah, it, it does feed through uh, as if, you know, she's she, she is in contact with, uh, you know, a thick fence, as it were.
1: Yes, there's a couple of there's a couple of interesting contrasts, isn't there, with with Mark Smith, who never, other than a, a couple of periods of his life, never moved from Prestwich area. Uh, she crossed the Atlantic a couple of times and moved across America a few times. She seemed to she did seem to suffer from homesickness, particularly for L.A. Um, she didn't enjoy Chicago, um, and so there, there's some interesting contrasts. If you I mean, she was obviously younger than Mark, but if you look at how he describes his childhood compared to the way she does. There's some similarities, but but there's a lot of different, clear, obviously a lot of clear differences. Not just the privilege, relative privilege, and so on. The, the pink mansion interested me. It seemed a bit David Lynch. This place. She she talks about spying on people doing naked yoga, and and um, there being a, a dry fountain and an empty swimming pool, which she had to get to through some kind of maze, a hedge maze. Uh, and and there was a koi carp pond with no koi carp in it. So I'm not sure how you know it's a koi carp pond. <laughs> pond but maybe it's got a sign on it saying koi, koi carp. Pond. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, so it's, there's some imagery in there. You just kind of, this is,
0: this is really odd. I think she plays that up a little bit, quirky side of L.A. Like uh, you were talking a bit about her kind of spiritualism, which she touches on quite a few times through, and that kind of just below the surface is the other world. And she does talk when she moves to Chicago, right? She starts talking about there's ghosts in that house and there. Cool. So, yeah, she moves over to Chicago and she's not very happy there. She describes herself as withdrawn and she kind of makes it difficult. And she, I guess she's trying to get in between her, her new step father.
1: about him. Um, she didn't like him at first, although he clearly became important to her when her mum moved in with Marvin he said she says he had a beard I didn't trust men with beards
0: <laughs> yeah there's another Smith thing right he wouldn't he wouldn't yeah. let anyone have a beard in the band yeah until, until
2: said... the American band yeah oh yeah so said that she didn't trust men that wear rings
1: <laughs> 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 well, sure. I mean, I, given, given some of the stories she seemed to have plenty of cause not to trust quite a lot of men so she took she does me- we ought to mention as well um Uh, given the the kind of atmosphere in which her mum worked and uh, one of her chapters called share was my babysitter although she actually wasn't but was present in the area there's lots of things like that um she she talks about being though quite shy and introverted and enjoying her own company and but then in 1970 she she was expected to go off to camp which i think is a a specifically American kind of phenomenon. Um, and she, she 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 writes, I thought this was funny. I just wanted to say this. I was furious w- with my mother when she decided to structure my summers, which I thought was a fantastic line. But th- this apparently wasn't a camp where you actually camp. She seemed to go there by bus every day. So this is a bit like a Koi up pond with no... Coy carp <laughs> in it a, a camp where you don't actually camp
0: taking away my freedom i was interested in, which isn't
1: of any relevance to anything
0: else probably but she went to the laboratory school in chicago which was formed which was founded by john dewey who was one of the, the first ah, progressive nice. educators I was, I was like oh it seems like by the time she got there it, it actually transitioned into something more like a, a prep school so it did actually it wasn't really this um progressive uh Plus anymore but she did later go to some kind of much more progressive um, non-structured schools which again that I think that fed into her kind of creative approach yeah and then she gets into smoking weed and uh, the carpenters and yeah. and um, she describes herself as a manipulator and stirrer in the family house and um, she's not enjoying her time in in Chicago and she eventually persuades her her mother to let her move back to L.A.
2: You mentioned the show was my babysitter thing. Uh, but, yeah, it's another theme. Celebrities throughout the book. It, she's just sort of like name-dropping all the time. Oh, I can't, I'm, I'm a sucker
0: love, for a name-drop.
2: Doc Juan, Nigel Kennedy... Gary Linnecker. Lordy, Chris Mann himself.
1: Definitely a lot of it, yes, and that, that's the yeah. an example
2: of there. it. And there's not to um, mention in, in the early stuff about it, the music that she's listening to, you kind of, like, touched on the, the carpenters before, but she mentions, like, sort of Led Zeppelin, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, and other cultural stuff like Elvis films, which, you know, clearly, it's all stuff that, stuff that, that you know, sticks with her culturally, you know. Um, and there's lots of stuff about sort of uh if, if, you know men again and uh uh there was a bit about was it joey ramon snorting uh, in heroin and throwing through up on joey ramon many
0: many years later of course but yeah she does tell a story
2: years, uh, when she was not when she was a child then.
1: <laughs> no thankfully the the line there is um uh it's a bit it's a little bit later she says she talks about the runaways and she talks about the ramones just in passing she said um i think she's Talking forwards in time, one night in New York City at the Peppermint Lounge, I snorted heroin and threw up on Joey Ramon's leg. He was extremely gracious about it. <laughs> one thing you can rely on with the Ramones, they're,
3: they're
0: always <laughs> gracious in those situations, which I imagine
1: was a daily occurrence with, with that band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there's um, this kind of time, she's actually quite young when she's discovering drugs and. Um, and, and music she talks about carol king's album tapestry and and yeah. pearl by janice joplin she seems to have quite a an affinity for janice joplin and her, her mum and marvin had the beatles but she's 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 early teens at this point yeah, quite i think young. she's about 13 or so maybe 13 yeah, 14 um, there's a section here which which just stood out for me as the kind of thing she says that is absolute nonsense but symptomatic of what i think is a very genuine mindset for her she's she's talking about color we're listening to this music on on weed she says um visualizations of abstract particles dancing on vibrational frequencies created patterns resulting in glorious spacescapes in my mind i understood the music from the interior of his inspirational seed an understanding so pure, it seemed to resonate from the spark of creation itself, emanating from the divine nugget within the heart of the creator. Which is one of those paragraphs that really doesn't seem to mean much. I, I get, I get what she.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't get where you're coming from. It's just, it's really, really wordy, and it reminds me quite yes. a lot of like Mick Middle's writing. He's just he, lots of yeah. fillers in there. He's just. Fair too much going on about describing what the pavement looks like on a, a wet January morning or s- something like that. Um, it's yeah, overblown. Fillers, yeah, I'll well, give it to
0: her because that is a big part of her personality, isn't it? So I think it's I... <laughs> about this time as well.
1: She has her first psychologist, um, mm. somebody called Royal Butler. Incredible. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the other thing, isn't it? That because of her background, her, her father's a psychologist, and obviously they they, they come from money that idea of of having a child psychologist in the early 70s or whenever this was is um is, is very interesting and she's gone through that her entire life she another thing she goes back to is is her psychologists and people to help her along that side and the interesting one I guess later is the woman she meets who's kind of the perfect middle between the psychologist and the spiritualist and she tells her about the the, the cycles of of bad luck and things like that, which I thought knowing some psychologists is like that's a that's an unusual thing for you to tell a client that you're
1: going to go through a decade <laughs> a decade of of turmoil. That's
2: more well, like astrology that than anything else. I,
1: I was going to talk about her later on when we got that. So this woman was a, a Jungian psychologist for a start, which which is I regard as pseudoscience anyway. Okay. Um, but but basically an astrologer. Yes. Um, uh, bricks talks about finding it amazing that she could draw, draw up a chart based on her birth date which is what of course you do with astrology it wasn't a newspaper astro- um, uh, astrological thing in other words um, but it was well, still we, clearly nonsense
0: we did the one of smith because um phil one of his buddies draws up astrological charts so over our christmas special i think last year we talked through smith's chart uh suggested he would have done well had he gone into tennis i think that's <laughs> what i took away from that right she moves back to la she moves in with her father and given the tumultuous relationship at that point it was a move that i imagine her her mother at that point it was reluctant to do but for whatever reason she agreed and and, um went back and then she she talks um she goes off to talk about the woman who barbie was based on for a little while this is what's interesting about this book is that Unlike I said, I guess Smith's, which is uh, is it certainly wasn't linear, but it was like okay, well we're sticking to Smith all the way through. She just tells all these little stories that aren't really directly related to her, the, what happened to people around her, which I thought was such a weird way to write your biography, but also I kind of like it. I'm glad that she talked about Barbie and then Ken, who was based on Barbie's brother or something. And then Ken I mean, moves in across the street, <laughs> and then she gets sick from eating too much chocolate and vomits. Or Barbie's sister's house, and Barbie has to clean up. And she, and ba- Barbie I is di-
1: very kind. Yeah,
0: I had disgraced myself at Barbie's house is one of my favourite lines. <laughs> we'll Again, un- well, unfortunately, this is the sad thing about the story is that part of it was framed that her father had given her five dollars. For per, per pound she lost. So again, as with all of these like fun delightful stories, there's this bitter or tragic, sad under, undertone to it.
1: Yeah, there's a darkness, isn't there? The re- the reading a bit about her moving back, and she she talks um, as we're talking name dropping and so on. She talked our neighbours included top showbiz lawyers, which you can't imagine being in a book that Marky e. Smith would have written. <laughs> Even if there were, he just wouldn't have talked about. It. So that you kind of get an impression of what that's like and then she talks about her father keeping his gun collection and poison blow darts in a special place in his and Maggie's Maggie's being his new partner's walk-in closet located in their bedroom and his dreaded bull's dick cane again it's this pearl in the oyster thing isn't it it's the the bit of grit that that is just making this darker uh, her father's odd because later on uh, there's he attacks her but, um at various times he does things that that suggests that well, he's a complex character. That he does things that she does appreciate. He helps her in trouble at school, and um, he, which we'll probably get to that incident. But and and at the camp, he turns up and collects her on horseback, which which she regarded as the most loving thing he ever did for her. It's complex. But it just means that this picture of a very privileged childhood is a bit more complicated than that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what is is really interesting about the book and makes it makes it a good read. Because it is a good read. I really enjoyed reading it for, for that reason. Um she's she's honest. She then decides to no longer go to the kind of I guess more progressive free school and moves to a regular high school, which she describes as having a mix of rich kids. And, and poor Latino kids and, and black kids. And, and she dabbles in a bit of witchcraft at that time too. And then she describes that incident where she's surrounded by a bunch of kids. And so dad sends her off to Ed Parker, Elvis's Bodyguards Karate School, which again, he's like, sounds like it's out of a sitcom. I'm going to send you to yeah. Elvis's Bodyguards Karate School, where you're going to kick the shit out of Carl Wilson's son while she's singing good vibrations. Uh, and then she takes out a group of mean girls in the bathroom, including the vice-principal whose name Miss Nagel, I thought. Very prescient mm-hmm. there,
1: isn't it? Um, an interesting this, this coincidence. Whole, this this section of the book, it, it I, I think, it's a bit like I was saying, she's this mixture of hokey LA psychotherapy and hard-of-nails stuff going on for her. Yeah. She's an absolutely amazing character in that respect. Gang of lads who threaten to rape her. She goes off and does karate lessons and then this bunch of girls make out to attack her. It's just worth reading what she says here. She says, I felt a hand grab my shoulder from behind. Without thinking, I pinned the hand to my shoulder with my right hand and held it firm. I used my left elbow to smash up hard into her jaw. Um, I heard a crack. The girl fell backwards, momentarily unconscious. Then a full-scale fight break out. I kicked, fought, and punched. I used every move I had ever mastered. I kept my face covered. So she's using the right technique. Blocked any blows to my head while my legs doled out a series of furious roundhouse kicks. <laughs> um, everything was a blur. Um, two more of the mean girls went down, and then there was another hand on her shoulder. She kicks backwards. That turns out to be the teacher. Um, so out of the five initial mean girls i'd managed to take down three when i looked at the floor i saw the person i just kicked in and he was a teacher i mean that that's extraordinary that that yeah that that's kind of um something you just have no clue that that's what she's going to be capable of at all and I'm, those girls wouldn't have done either but i i just i have so much admiration for that actually that g- given her background given all the kind of hokey, fluffy dream sky and all this kind of stuff she talks about. She's actually pretty street smart and from a young age.
0: If we're looking for sentences that would not have appeared in Renegade, a flurry of roundhouse kicks is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Again, those themes coming back of just not being able to trust men, particularly in boys and being in it repeatedly in very, very Difficult and dangerous and, and, and abusive situations. And then she she does move on to talking about the, the creepy phone calls that have been coming to the house. That her brother, her I think five or six year old brother, had been taking these phone calls from this um, stalker. Who turns
1: out to be a neighbour.
0: Just the amount of these things that she has gone through during this story, this life, is just, just so heartbreaking to that.
1: What's be- interesting though is that I was reading an interview with her from the 80s around the time of Adult Net um, I think it was in Record Mirror um, and she talks a little bit about her experience you know, as a woman. She says, I'm not a feminist I think in more recent um, has taken a, a more leading or more prominent role in campaigns around women in music violence against women and um, women's perception of, of their bodies. And I suppose the stories she's telling they seem disturbing and extreme but I think Probably a lot of women reading this book would recognize a lot of this in it. Sadly, Sadly yes. I'm yes. Yes. sure that it's going to be a common experience, and a lot of women reading this and say, Yeah, that happened to me. Um, Again,
2: yeah. yeah. it really reminds me of the Albertine Al- book in that respect. Yeah, uh, totally. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really street smart, um, especially in the punk scene, because there's some nasty ass fuckers like, around at yeah, that yeah. time. I mean, it's, it, the, the gigs were, you, you know, you could, well, you, you get riots going on, you know what I mean? They're just be, like full on people with the uh, bike chains whacking at your face like you know
0: the the music scenes she experienced that within that she also experienced it within her own marriage and she experienced it in her childhood this is uh horrible theme that is running through is that she's a she's a strong woman she's positive she's a force for good she's a force for creativity i think we get then to the point where she starts to get into punk so i'm guessing by this point she's 17 18 years old she starts getting into punk she starts getting harder drugs a little bit um and then this is when it, it, it really goes off the rails with her father when he is just totally untrusting of her he really paranoid about her actions and and her her relationships with with boys and it, it culminates in um, him basically attacking her and then that's the end of that relationship in that sense and she moves into
1: her friend's house. Pri- privilege doesn't make her life any better in terms of the violence she suffers and um, is around this time as well uh, though and I, I thought this was an interesting story she talks about losing her virginity age 16 at this point um, around about then, with a the guy who was a musician in a famous band, who was ten years older than her, and she kind of had picked him to do it. <laughs> so it's yeah. not; it wasn't a, a boyfriend situation. She just turned up and said, "How about it?" And the guy was, "Oh, okay." <laughs> kind of really
0: That's such a weird, part.
1: weird story, wasn't it? It, it, it was. Paul and I... just say, "I'm I'm here," and he's like, "Sure." Wow. yeah yeah i mean you, you the these days you wouldn't be quite as um accepting of his behavior perhaps no but for no. her it seems to have been that was her choice she did it and and actually he was all right you know but it, it's not a safe situation is it no no not at all it was it was her decision she followed through she was safe but it's if you look at the <laughs> other things that happened to her you would have to say that wasn't a good idea yeah,
2: the uh, man control chapter, uh, which, which talks about being raped, but doesn't report it.
1: We know, don't we, why women don't report these things? And yeah, this is the 1970s in particular. I mean, we think it's bad now for people, but it was a hell of a lot worse than being believed. So she chose to kind of suppress it and move on.
2: she should be carrying around with her for the rest of her life, uh, yeah. you know. But she
1: describes yeah. it as survival, right? And she does say that
0: this yeah. is the first time in this book that she's been able to talk about that. And, and that's very brave of her to put that in the book. And that's, that's like she said, that's her way to survive and, and deal with this awful thing that happened. Mm. Um she she gets into punk rock at this kind of stage you know she gets into the jam the the clash and, and all the punk scene and then she's she's particularly into the clash and the song guns at brixton which is why she then becomes called uh brixton and um and bricks and she gets a job as in a boutique in chicago where she ends up being this kind of window model where she's uh describes fashion as her Prozac and how it uh, helps her through. She describes herself as a misfit at, at, at school. And uh, then she, her first band as a, as a singer, as a covers
1: band, yeah. Just on this fashion store, I, I did a bit of research into this because I, Fiorucci, I think is, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, something like that. And she she describes it as like fashion theater. It was bonkers. It smashed the mold of traditional retail, which again is a sentence you wouldn't find in a Mark Smith book. It ripped up the rule book and glued it back together with glitter and leather. Did It opened in May 1979. Um, and she describes it as the hottest store in Chicago in 1980. But I also found, as I was looking at the newspapers, I wondered if there might be a picture of their window display, you know, I thought that right. might be the kind of thing that get reported for a new start, it, but it wasn't. But, but in actual fact, it opened in May 1979. It closed at the end of February 1980 after 10 months with, with losses of a million dollars. Hottest store or not, it didn't actually last <laughs> very long at all.
2: The nearest thing got to retail and Smiths, but was the uh, bit about, uh, I'm going down to Woolworths and I'm going to shag a coat to death. <laughs>
0: Right. So she joins the the covers band as a singer. They kind of reach out and they think she's cool. So she um, starts her musical career. And we don't get too many details about that band. But then she talks about going to London, visiting, going on the, the Open Top Buzzies, and um, has a, a an affair with a keyboard player in a very famous rock band who was also oh. in another band who had a number one single. I thought I about work- it. We ought to be able to work that out. That's got to be... I'm like, Rick Waitman is too obvious. I put it... I tried. I looked. Famous rock band, keyboard player, also number one single. I actually asked chat GPT and it just kept giving me like all the members of Genesis. And I'm like, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it's Mike Rutherford. He wasn't a, even
1: a keyboard player. I had a half-hearted attempt at working out who this would be. Systematically, we just need to list of all the number ones for that period and then work it out from there. But I haven't actually attempted that work. And you kind of think, Oh, well, what's the all point right. as well. But then I do lots of things for which there is no point. She has the dalliance,
0: but then again, following this. So it really is. Think of it. James brown a few years ago and for every fun story of james brown it was immediately followed by some horrific thing that had happened and i got that feeling again with this with this book so we had this wonderful idea of her being in London that, uh, and and having the positive dalliance with this with this famous rock player but then she goes on to describe some horrific abuse by some people on on the train as she's traveling around Europe including the train conductor just another very dark the amount of times these things are happening to it
1: it's what, what I was saying earlier about the tone of the book swinging wildly and she kind of writes about everything in this kind of the same way but tonally it it really shifts dramatically from one to the other. The episode on the train—you uh, don't see that coming at all—and she doesn't dwell on it. It has just a few paragraphs. At this, at this point, she's just got admittance to Bennington, the, which I think is quite a famous college, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, p- people like Klaus Kaskenkiold and so on were there as well. So people who who come up in the, in her life a few times later on. There was another line I noticed. This is just before the story on the train which just made me laugh. And then the story on the train happened and I just felt myself plunged into, Oh God. Again, I mean, she, she, she went to the Kenzo store. I'm not familiar with Kenzo in Paris. And she says, I'm so grateful. I had an hour in that space at that time to experience fashion and retail magic. And, And then she talks, and then she talks about the attack on the train, some writers
0: use that that tonal shift but it doesn't necessarily seem like it's a planned thing it's just like this is no. a thing that happened and this is another thing that happened some of those things are wonderful and fun and delightful and some of them are horrific and they're just presented yeah almost matter-of-factly yeah when she gets to Bennington and she talks about that dark creative energy and it's built on the Indian burial grounds with the uh, veil between dimensions and um She's in a class with Brett Easton Ellis, who obviously went on to write American Psycho. And um, she then goes at uh, this time. She buys a, a bass and writes her first song, which would be Edie, which was uh, eventually came out under the uh, adult net. And uh, yeah, she starts her first proper band, the band Dratsing, which uh, I guess is uses the Nadsat from Clockwork Orange as its name. Um, and she writes a bunch of songs, including the one that eventually became Hotel Bloodell. and she's in the band with close cuts and cold, as you said, who went on to paint the cover of by language amongst other things.
1: It's interesting to see what she's doing in Bennington you uh, again, she talks um about the kind of hauntedness of the place she she describes it as the or she says it was described as an insane asylum for the rich. Um, she said it was the most most expensive private college in America, and that's where she was. So, yeah, she became the lover of Eric Amble, who had been the guitarist for Joan Jett. Yeah. She said, um, I took courses in theatre arts, acting, Alexander technique, and visual arts classes, as well as music. And I love the next line, which is, I had a particular inspiring class called stringed instruments. We played everything that was stringed. <laughs> String. <laughs> kind of... A deadpan kind of so yes yeah, so she she then gets
0: pretty heavily into coke and, and she goes on a few benders and she kind of goes through her her rock and roll period there and she describes a very weird incident where somebody bites her and she gets a, a infection that almost kills her a concussion and also uh, she get, becomes pregnant and decides not to keep the baby and she sees all of these as signs that she sh- she needs to move on she needs to go and and do something and then a date with fate she she drops out of school she goes back to chicago tries to put some uh, her effort into the band band Dratzing, and finds slates in the in the, in the racks of a local record store
2: so it was interesting that, she, that, that Slate's got mentioned because later on i'm sure she she mentions a air song from slates going and they wanted me to play it and i never heard it and it's like i'm gonna say you mentioned this a couple of chapters ago and then yeah I, she starts sort of like talking a bit about the music she's listening to and it's you know it's shifting from some like the, the hippie-ish stuff onto the more punky stuff is we kind of mentioned like but also the the, the culture club visage depeche mode Echo and the bunny men, they're all kind of like um appearing on the radar for her around about this time. So uh, yeah, she's she's definitely got an open mind towards music, some poppy stuff, and some punky stuff.
1: Ang- the anglophile, right? There's an interesting bit to this point which I which I thought is is uh, she just kind of throws it in, but it's clearly central to her worldview. Um, just before leaving what she describes as her disastrous second year at Bennington, she says. Um, I truly believe I'm guided by the force of the universe. I know this is a bold statement to make, she says. Um, but she, she says she believes in signs and sees them everywhere. And and numerous times in this book, you kind of feel, well, I don't know, she's just kind of opportunistic and following something that's going to take her somewhere else. Uh, clearly, that's often a good idea. But um, uh, she she's seeing Bennington as starting to be a negative experience. So she's wanting out and, Again, fortunately, and there's an aspect of privilege in this. She's able to, she's able to do that. Take her friend out with her, friend, Lisa, out with her.
0: I think that's one of the um, positive signs that we do see of, of of having money and having that net. She says a few times, "Make the leap, and the net will appear." Mm. I don't want to get too much into how much money allows you to do that. Not all of the things works. She then goes, you know, she goes to the gig with her friend. Twenty um, third of April, nineteen eighty three. Forty years ago, right? Wow. Yeah, we're wow. almost to the day. Yeah. Yeah. True.
2: But yeah, but when you mentioned Slurs before, she does make a few comments on on that, which is interesting for like her first impressions on the fall. But she she describes it as challenging music and comments about like the the vocal style of, of uh, Mark Smith. Brendan it made me think. He was saying, I think he was playing a right handed guitar strung upside down, and only wrong people do that. Brendan, don't they?
0: Well, he restrung it. I think Craig does restring it, whereas I don't. So I play upside down just like a normal guitar, but I'm also a terrible guitarist, so <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't
1: really matter anyway. Didn't Jimi Hendrix do that as apparently, well?
0: Kirk Co- 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 and but... Jimi Hendrix apparently both did, like, yeah. did that kind of... like When the, she goes to see the, the, the band, right, so she talks about the singer's lanky, nondescript her... Uh, the bass is what, as a bass player herself, that's what stands out to her. This this big monolithic bass sound. Uh, the drummer was an animal, uh, tribal and ferocious beats. cowboy so and then she loves Paul Hanley. She says he's really sweet. Uh, she bumps into the singer. She's okay. I've heard her tell this story so many times in, in interviews and stuff. Um, then she bumps into the singer. She she tells him that she loves the gig, but she's irritated by his lyrics because she can't understand them. We um, didn't have beti-
1: Annotated Fall then, you see?
0: No, and then, you know, I would be lost without the Annotated Fall. As as we described the other week when it was down for an hour and I almost quit the, the
1: podcast.
0: She goes to uh, meet him in the bar and then she goes to the after show party with him.
1: Well, uh, it was interesting because her main focus was on Steve Hanley. She was a bassist herself, of course. She talks about watching him um, she, says, she says I wanted to absorb everything I could from watching this man, Steve Hanley I stood there like a sponge she says, <laughs> rooted to the spot swaying like a bewitched heathen beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. I didn't know that bewitched heathens were a thing but they definitely sway though. they do they, <laughs> they do, do. Uh, and then, and then th- this is the end now of part one of the book, of the first yeah. third of her story, and she, and it ends with her, uh, her and Mark um, having sex for the first time, and I, I love the way she described this. She says, um, "I felt like a stunned mullet." <laughs> I imagine most of us would after having the. Uh...
0: <laughs> I roll around the sack with Marquis e. Smith. So he says come to come to my hotel room." um and um Pat trip dispenser gives him some some caffeine which turns out to be speed. Um and and he she plays him some songs of the tape from the band of dancing and he says who wrote those songs? You are a fucking genius. Smooth old mess making his move there And, and she she portrays him here again after all of the abusive uh, interactions with men she portrays smith as as gentle and as uh as really understanding and they 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 talk they lie next to each other and then as the sun comes up they they consummate the relationship and so it's a very positive start it's a, it's a beautiful start to the relationship uh, mes then leaves right and so they they then go on the rest of the tour but um and ikea just left the tour and it, it's um apparently a bit of a mess. They go off and he reroutes the tour to come back to Chicago where Bricks is, asks her to come to New York for a few gigs they've got going on there, which she does, uh, and then asks her to move to uh, England and he's going to help her get a deal and be a solo artist. So big, big times
1: for uh, Bricks. What comes through here, and I think still does, I mean, despite everything that's happened um, uh, particularly, I I always felt between her leaving the first time and before she came back, they they tended to speak of each other quite respectfully. I think um he in his book he doesn't he's not particularly negative about her. He he bats away questions about her in the press generally. He clearly, had written a few songs about her. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure all the songs that are supposed to be about her are about her, but given that he knew other women and probably wrote songs about them too but i I think what does come through uh, and i guess after the second the second time she was in the band and left that was a worse situation it broke the relationship the connection they had let's say she obviously feels that connection still and when you hear her talk about him although that there's an edge to it uh, um, because of her experience and some of the later things that were said I mean, he talked about the extricated being subhuman, for example, when there was seemed to be an element of competition between yeah. that band and the Fall towards the end. But then they seemed to sort it out a little bit. Certainly, at this point, you get the sense that there was a real and immediate connection between them, and that 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 survived even after they'd split up. There was still something there, and and you get the sense when Brix talks about Mark now that she still senses that they there was a connection that that um, that was deep. It just didn't work out in the end. One of the things that Bricks has had to put up with from some fans who are not keen on her, a lot are, but some are not, um, where, where there's an element of sexism to the criticism of her. They see her as the groupie that got lucky and all of this kind of stuff. And and there's there's an element of criticism of her that, that is very kind of gendered in that way that they wouldn't mm. say about it. Mark in the same way, or about a man in the same situation. It, it, it strikes me as a very real thing. They clearly fell for each other straight away, and that does come through very much.
0: The fact she kept the name Smith all yeah. the way
1: through, she may have other
2: reasons for that too, of course. Whether or not the criticism that Bricks gets will be leveled at a blow that was in the bandy, you know, uh, there are stories in uh, Steve Amley's book uh, about him being a bit naughty, uh, but, you know, it uh, all gets pushed under the carpet.
0: She describes that as the rules of the road, right? We'll get to that in uh, a little bit later. What what happens on the road stays on the road. But I'm just going to take a bit of a detour and play a few a couple of songs that um, we've kind of touched on or that will become uh, relevant soon. Strap in.
2: Them too, which I must admit, as, with all of their communications, I don't really fully understand. But the defect is in me, quite clearly. But we'll probably be rebroadcasting the session next week, so it'll give you another chance to practice evolving. Or, uh, uh, yes, that, yes, let's move on. This is the fall from the new LP, Hotel Blurder. <laughs>
0: So we heard Guns of Brixton, the, the Clash, and then The Adult Net, Edie, which was, uh, I think, her first single, backed up by the, most of the fall. And then uh, Hotel Bloedel, the, with a little bit of our favourite John Peel introducing it. So I guess, yeah, we, we move on to part two. Part two. Uh, thankfully, uh, this part's not that important. The fall. <laughs> um <laughs> So she ends up in Manchester. She's running off with a man she's known for six weeks, which doesn't go down well too well with her mother. I never expected Manchester to be so grim. Well, <laughs> if you'd have done a bit of uh, homework, you would have you would have got that. Joyless and drab, although it was made, not a single leaf or flower, just cash and carry
1: sprayed on windows.
2: I like the quote what she said, it, it smells like death.
1: Yes. Yes. <laughs> Like, like the abattoir at the hotel Bledel. this this was the 20th of May 1983 she dates it to the day when they arrived in Manchester so I think I think the fall have been off to to Iceland at this point and come back so they've come back from America via Iceland haven't they I think and and he says to her well press switch is is a Jewish neighborhood so you'll feel right at home and she's like I don't <laughs> at all the culture clash is uh, she describes entering his flat for the first time and it, that's really hilarious reading that it's you know the uh, Kay's knickers are still around. He keeps his milk on the window ledge. Well, students still do that now. Place on Rectory Lane, which I think was the second flat he had. After um, she describes the building as an old rectory, although I don't actually think it was the old rectory. The old rectory is elsewhere on Rectory Lane. But um, um but yeah, the, the countercultural shock comes through very well. I think she writes about it really well. It's, it's entertaining to read what it was like. Uh, the kind of sense of kind of bewilderment and outrage she feels about how dreadful this is. but but she's in love and you know that's that's what it is she gets on with it tries to cook for him and all this kind of stuff he's not cooking much for her um she she does uh say that she didn't know anybody she's kind of a fish out of water of course she when they visited london a few years before with a, with a family there were family friends in london so she's not entirely on her own but it must still have been a you know it's quite a risk she's taking isn't it other than 1983, you're probably
0: pretty isolated. If you, you have your family, just a few members of family in London, right, who are only available possibly through a quite expensive phone call occasionally. Uh-huh. Pretty cut off. You're in smelling flat. The walls of the halls are covered in dirt. Droves of cats. Kay's knickers still on the bedroom floor. She describes as being pretty dirty. Where is your washing machine? I wash my clothes in the bath. <laughs> There's a hose attached to this tap for the shower. We she we used to have one of those. It's like, how was how was she going to condition her He he does make a, a full English the next day and gives her this uh, some black pudding, which she uh, she's not overly keen on.
2: Yeah, it reminds me, It's like a cross between the the, the house that the young ones lived in and something like a rising damp in it. You know, it's it's proper grim stuff, but uh, of its time in the. I suppose it wasn't an isolated thing. Like you mentioned, the uh, the shower uh, attachment for the bath. That was that was quite a common thing. Um, poverty back then was poverty. It was the, the days when you used to rent televisions. You know, you got to rumble and rent a telly. It was really well off you. You'd rent a video recorder as well.
1: I think the other point is that the fall was, at this point, were touring heavily. So he wasn't actually in the flat. That often, presumably, uh, even when he'd be at home, he'd probably spend most of his time in the pub. Touring that heavily, I mean, you're not going to bother to sort out the fridge, are you? They were in that lifestyle as well, weren't they? I think Kay and
0: Mark were described as having quite a hippie-ish kind of um, free... Lifestyle, although that wasn't necessarily reflected in the punky music, but the idea of case relaxed about those things. They go on tour of Germany. She she goes along with them. The lads obviously have no idea who she is or why she's there, but she's uh, helping out a little bit, and Smith's carrying around his cash in the carrier bag, and uh, she starts to try and build relationships with the band, Quiet Craig and Normal normal Paul and Carl contin burns <laughs> So and, uh, he looks not defined in any way. Burns is just such a character, isn't he? And he's just he's just off the radar entirely. Is like like nobody like he was in the music scene obviously for quite a good chunk of time while he was in the in the band. But then you know, famously, like when they did The Fall, and he was the kind of mystery that they couldn't get in touch with. And um, and even the old brother, like there's been no talk with Carl and he would be such an interesting person to get his take on it but it's unlikely isn't it at this point
1: he doesn't want to be found at the moment does he so if if he's still alive so.
0: Yeah, you know we got to respect that, right? You know he's he's, he's yeah. he gets to make that choice. So they get the um. This is when they get to the the hotel blood elk thing. They work down next to the slaughterhouse. We've heard the story. We did the song on the episode, and we went through the entire story. And um, it, it's a it's a brilliant, fun ghost story, which again take with a pinch of salt. Both Smith and uh, Bricks have told it in their own way. And then they get married in Barry Registry Office. No no family. Carl Burns is the best man, and um, such
1: is life. It comes to something if he's the best man. It's what? a strange
0: one, but you hear the stories of. Oh, brother, brought it up a few times. I think Paul said a lot about how there were two camps, more or less, and kind of um, Burns was very much in the in the Mark camp, and then you had Riley's kind of thing, and and uh, there was a, a division. So It makes sense knowing that context that of the band he's going to choose Carl Burns, he's not going to choose well, Riley was going anyway, but he's not choosing Mike Riley as his best man. Or,
1: yeah, uh, the, the sense I get is that Carl, Carl Burns was in his own camp, and so he would he would he seemed to you know for some reason kept coming back, didn't he? Yeah, so yeah, seven or eight there. times, right? Yeah. yeah, so despite everything, um, there's something there, but 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 he would seem to be a double agent sometimes as well, and ultimately he's out for his own position, I think. That's the sense I get reading all the
2: <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, this bit is quite interesting because uh, she does describe the members of the band. So, you know, Burns mentioned before, not refined anywhere. Paul Anley was adorable. Grace Gowan was introverted. And it mentioned Steve Anley being helpful, uh, but the fall was our office it was just like work, you know, it was work, work, work. They were more like work colleagues and friends. She mentions uh, Van Aids going a bit mad when you're touring. Which I
1: thought was reminiscent of Van Plague from later on. I'm
0: pretty sure yeah. that's where it came from. I think we talked about it at the time, which is obviously Van Airds is a pretty un-PC kind of thing to be saying, but for him to then write... The song Van Plague which is actually quite a sensitive or seems a very sensitive approach to the health crisis. Well there, yeah. there's
1: something that Briggs does say I think it's in the 1984 section so we're not far from it. She, she's talking about Rough Trade and Body Map and Michael Clark and who at that point was the boyfriend of one of the Body Map designers David Holler um, and Lee Bowery and uh, who um, she describes sexually assaulting her but, um, but nonetheless seems to have forgiven him but she says I think there's a general misconception about Mark being some provincial closed-minded northerner. In reality, he was super open and accepting of gay people and it was a complete non-issue for him. So I, I think although he uses un PC language quite a lot, I don't think it comes from a place of prejudice at all. And he there were interviews with him in the gay press, for example later on in, yeah in...
0: yeah uh, we've touched on so many times in the podcast about his intentions and 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 i jokingly keep saying have you seen that christian grunner Murphy <laughs> interview because that's the one that just keeps coming back but even in this we'll get to this later i imagine where he he has an altercation with a band in in denmark over something oh yes yeah. so this is the point where she basically comes part of the band like eases her way into the band she describes it and she does Hotel Bludel in. In a rehearsal, just in a few takes, and it's um, it's a song that she'd written prior to joining the band. With I guess newer, yeah. I think think
2: that's all like part of the uh, you know the first take thing, and she's kind of like going, oh, it it was kind of instinctive for Mark to just to go, sort of like, yeah, that's perfect. We we're using it. It's cut, cut back on studio. we was saying it? Like you know, he's it's the businessman uh, behind it all. I there think is making the He's gone about um two by four in the, in England. We don't they don't have a two by four. They don't know what it is. Fucking ridiculous. Well done. Yes. It's an imperial I, measure. We invented yeah. it.
1: All right. <laughs> Even I've heard of a two by four. I know nothing about DIY or anything, but I people keep saying this. I'm like, what are you talking about? Everyone talks about two by four. Yeah.
4: The
3: <laughs> there's I a bit can't... of
1: stuff on the annotated fall because I, I think, you know,
0: there's a bunch of Americans on there that uh, will say a few things like that. Like, oh, this seems to be something that's not culturally. There's some really weird ones it's talking about. I think it was like people wouldn't know what a bandaid is or something like that. Or yeah. There's, there's uh, some really strange ones in there and this two by four was the one where i was like no i think everyone knows a four by two or two by four or uh a...
2: yeah you've been hit one, one by one on several occasions
0: i've been <laughs> smacked by two by four more than once i did a bit of labouring and uh got to you gotta watch your in it head, aren't you one,
1: yeah, one of like... the things about her story of the origins of two by four she attributes it entirely to wiley Coy- coyote cartoons which yeah. may well mm. be part of it but of course the song lyrically owes a lot to that 1931 Woody Brothers song, Chased Old Satan Through the Door, which has got Hit Him on the Head by a 2 by 4 in the lyric of the song. She, she's, They've borrowed that lyric, clearly. Yeah. From, whether that's I- Mark or whether that's her, I don't know. But that's, that's not a coincidence.
0: No, and um, you, you can forget. Maybe she, when she's writing this many years later or whatever, she might might have slipped her mind. But yeah, so, yeah, like you said, as she talks about uh, um, the the fall wasn't the creative unit she expected. It was a lot like an office uh, with co workers and a boss, and everyone wrote their song separately. I've always found that really interesting about the fall that. Basically, they'd just be tasked with writing three or four songs and turning up when, the, when it was time to do an album with, like, what songs have you got? Oh, I've got six here. Like, And they might be instrumentals. They might have some words. Mo- mostly, they'd probably be instrumentals. They'd work them up, and then the album was done there. And it's like, I really, really like that way of working. I've never worked that way in any of the... Like, there's always been one or two songwriters. But this idea of everyone has to bring something. Mm. And so that, I think that would probably be quite freeing in its own way that Bricks knew, at least at this point, that she could bring three or four tr- songs and they'd, they'd end up on the album.
1: It, it's worth saying a little bit here. Uh, uh, I was going to go on to talk about Disney's dream, but I guess that's the next, because that's a clearly a massive bit we need to have a little chat about. But um, yeah, yeah. he's talking about the difference between Mark's philosophy of performance and hers. She said he had a completely different philosophy. He he would always want to be as challenging as possible I wanted to please the crowd. I would have been happy playing Totally Wired every night. People would scream for songs. Mark purposely didn't give it to them, which was a good and a bad thing. It was frustrating, but also maybe why the band was so special. So I think even though it's not her, she would prefer just to do the crowd-pleasing songs, she does recognise that there's a thinking perhaps behind why they didn't. And it certainly is part of why before we're able to carry on so much by training audiences not to expect the hits yeah and, and Riley particularly he disliked Riley's uh,
0: wanting to do that so it's interesting that he he was um, if he did mm. yeah if he did who knows Like, this, <laughs> don't trust anything Smith says he, he about got, Riley he...
2: You've got the bit in this chapter as well. She's going on about Creep not being about Mark. Um, which, I think I mentioned it before. Is it kind of like, oh, you're protesting a bit too much here? Come on, Mark. Give us another session. We're all right. Really. We won't slagging you.
1: It's, it's another, I mean, the the guy she mentions is about this guy called Skumak, who is, I think I worked out, it was a guy called Skumak Sabotka, who was a tour manager at the time, I think, and so fairly well-known in the industry. He's still around. I need to track him down and interview him about it. But... Um, so so I see no reason to doubt what she says. I mean there are lots of songs again it's a bit like songs about bricks. All if all the songs about Mark were about Mark. I think he wrote quite a lot about Mark. I don't yeah. I, I don't I don't think there's that yeah. much about Mark. There's at least one. I see nothing <laughs> in Creep. Well, yeah. there's Hey Mark Riley. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> when, when he when he wanted to have a go at people, he just had a go at them. He didn't do it in code,
0: you know? Generally, no. No, we were talking about uh, Sing harp. Patrick, who was on, made a point about um, the harpy as a force of nature. Like, he's almost respecting Bricks as he's dissing her. And then there's others like Bad News Girl, which she talks about herself, which is just, that's just bitter. <laughs> it's just bitter and nasty. I
1: think all, all the songs that are supposed to be about bricks probably certainly bad news girl everyone yeah, that's obvious maybe there's a bit in sing harpy but that's a couple of years on and He'd had other girlfriends since then, and so yeah, it, it could be a know. mixture of various relations. Yeah, but, but but she definitely sees herself in that lyric, and so I respect that take on it. I, I think it's perfectly plausible. She
0: talks about how she was Spock, second in command, that people would c- come to her to get
1: things done,
0: which is interesting. Especially, she says later when she comes back for a second time, that relationship had very much changed, and she was on the outside. But at this point, she was able to get Mark's ear to try and get things done, both musically and like. The back end. I really liked the way that she talks about Mark's mysticism and how he would make us all walk. Anti-clockwise, did she say, a, yeah. In widdish, get like around before you get on, on stage. She says, Mark never had stage fright, but I but I've definitely heard him talk about being nervous on stage. So go
1: on later on, perhaps. Yeah, yeah.
0: So they go on the tube and, and the, she does her first peel session with him. She this is a watershed for her, you know, these moments when she says she she loved it when she would hear people humming songs she'd written on the street. And that was the point where I was like, Really? I, I, <laughs> as much as I, as much as I love the fall. I don't know if I'm hearing people, like, whistling two by four <laughs> around. I don't think that. I've ever heard anybody whistle two by four,
2: no. It's <laughs> no. fitter, yeah, you know, but not that one.
0: <laughs> so then we do get to it, to 84, we get to the Disney's dream. And again, with Story, we've covered a bunch of times, Mark telling her this is evil and she she's wanting to show him her love, the Disney thing. And, and then, you know, lo and behold, this tragedy occurs where somebody is... Um, killed on the ride and With the, the death, Yeah, the death in disneyland uh, on the news and so it's a central story in many ways right it encapsulates a lot of the themes in the book of the darkness underneath the the shine
1: there's a, there's a few things in this bit. We we've talked a bit about how Disneyland keeps cropping up, so that's part of it. And her talking to Mickey Mouse, encouraging people to leave the site of the of the death and so yeah. forth. And Mickey Mouse crops up in various weird contexts, speaking so, uh, to her as well. Mickey Mouse speaking, actually yeah.
0: breaking the rules of Mickey and yeah. communicating.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and breaking breaking the rules of appropriate contact as well. Later on, oh, yeah. um, that's a story that's never quite resolved either. But um, clearly, everyone's familiar now with the with the story behind Disney's dream debased and, and the death of uh, Dolly Regina Young there's plenty of newspaper coverage of it and so forth but it's interesting to pay close attention to the story in the context of it being presented as a psychic one. Uh, of, of all the stories this this is the one I think if you were keen to find evidence this would be it. Mark being unkeen to go on the ride and talking about it being evil um, maybe he just didn't like fast fairground rides, you know but I was looking at the timeline so uh, sometimes this story is told inaccurately. I have to say. <laughs> People get their details wrong. So the okay. way the bricks tells it, they come out of the Matterhorn. He's really upset. So to calm him down, she takes him to another ride called It's a Small World, a more children's. And yeah, yeah. if you look at the maps of Disneyland at the time, it's not far. It's just a... A minutes walk it's next door there might however have been a queue to get on that ride as well there was a, she talks about queuing to get on the matterhorn one of the more popular rides but there may yeah. still have been a queue at it's a small world The go around it's a small world i looked up how long it takes to go around it's a small world takes about a quarter of an hour right. 15 minutes or so there's some videos online and if and actually the wikipedia page about the ride says it takes about yeah i've been hours. i've actually been on it i've been to um... Uh, and did it take minutes, you
0: about 15 minutes? Give or take. It's been a while, yeah, but there we go. Yeah, I'll give you that.
1: Glad you're able to confirm. So you're talking about... Then they come out of It's a Small World, and then all this is going on, and there's, and this woman has been sadly killed. So you're talking about at least, I would say, 20 minutes gap between them coming off Matterhorn and the and them coming out of its a small world and the incident happening people sometimes talk as though they've just come off the ride and this happens and it's not the case there's a there is um a gap of 20 minutes or so at least i don't say that that invalidates any psychic claims i would say that psychic claims are invalidated by psychic claims just being nonsense in the first yeah. place but it just i think it's interesting to look at it as a story in the detail because that's the kind of head I have. You're not going to be discouraged
0: if you believe that Mark was psychic by I, that. But yeah, it could easily just have been that I I don't really like this ride. Uh, and then he might have said that about 10 rides had they gone on 10, but it just so happened he was on them. But the fact that that happened on that day is just such a bizarre story. in a In a book... Of weird, unusual, and bizarre stories. This is this is the bizarre one. The, she then goes on to talk about um, the, the letters from Morrissey and Smith, maybe getting jealous of of the Smiths, especially as funds from record companies started to move away from the Fall potentially towards Smith and um, Grand is ditching them and then she goes on to tell the classical story which we know is uh, the motown story you know where where a and r of motown here is the classical and that's why they weren't from my understanding is that probably didn't help but it's it it wasn't quite as exciting as that it was more like that there was that they were just trying to set up a branch in london they were looking for bands and it just turned out the fall
1: wasn't really suited to them yeah, I think so. The next bit, once we get to eighty five, eighty six, and if you but um Bricks talks about buying a BMW and learning to drive and so on. Has Johnny Ma's got one. One of the things I like about Bricks is how incongruous she is in the World of the Fall. I like I like that kind of yeah. rubbing. And 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 she talks a little bit about um writing Terry Waite says she's always said, I think that the title was hers. She had and she felt very strongly it ought to be called that. And so that's sometimes pointed at as a psychic song, although although there's nothing in the song about kidnapping at all anyway so it's time. a bit difficult to say that mentioning in a song lyric someone who's prominent in the news anyway isn't really precognition unless you're actually saying something's going to happen to them which I the agree, song, yeah does.
0: it doesn't and that was my point I think when we covered it that I remember Terry Waite as being quite a I wasn't that old at the time so I'm probably mixing it up myself but I remember him being pretty well known as an envoy that was going over to oh, the yeah. Middle East well, and yeah. like, this was a tense time politically in in the in the middle east and they were known for watching television at this time and taking things from there so it then gets into michael clark kind of stuff and and i actually watched his film a new puritan the the other day which i haven't seen uh, all the way through, I don't think before And it was really, really good And how he set some um, fall songs to it's on, it's on YouTube, if you haven't seen it Go watch it so, yeah, Obviously they go on to do the Curious Orange Obviously this is a little bit before, right? So they've already brought in Lecky Because they get on to do Ben Sinister And this session Saving Grace with him uh, Wonderful and Frightening, right? So they bring him on to do those And he's just come off the ashram so, and she's trying to in- introduce a bit of commercialism through songs like Old Brother and Creep, trying to get on top of the pot. Uh, Gavin Friday drops by and she describes how they're living hand-to-mouth tour record tour record and the Bricks clones appear
2: she describes uh, Burnsy as extremely unhygienic this time she described him as
1: barely human at one point
2: <laughs> <laughs> he talks about she got him a
0: cake and he smashed it against the wall a birthday cake oh my god
1: there's a various thing about a fire or a fire alarm going off in a hotel and Morrissey making some comment that she's saying where's Mark where's Mark and, it, and Morrissey's like oh he's probably burning to death upstairs and that's it? it that's the end of their relationship yeah she she says he was always so unfriendly prickly and weird whereas jo- johnny marr was the loveliest most friend friendly genuine person yeah.
2: yeah
0: so then there's this incident where the, the band gets broken into and uh smith loses it at the band and and both steve and paul quit with Steve eventually coming back, his son, his baby, was ill at the time, and that he took a kind of paternity leave. Some leave. That's when pump pipe enthusiast Simon Rogers joined the band.
2: Right, he got a grant to come back, which isn't bad. And uh, there was a story about him uh, when he was not in the fall; he was working in a petrol station and earning more money.
0: Yeah, this is the, around the end of this nation's savings. Grace kind of era and then they bought a house together which is obviously the one from my new house and she talks a little bit about smith taking credit for other people's songs which is a reoccurring theme through all of this that not that you're probably going to make too much money from having a writing credit on one or two of the songs. But if you're like Steve Hanley, for example, that maybe deserves a writing credit on 200 of the songs, mm-hmm. um, that might, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so don't sue me. But, you know, he probably deserves a writing credit on a good chunk of songs. And those are songs that are selling in the age of streaming. That, that I imagine those pennies kind of... I
1: don't. Yeah, I think um, it's an old story, that, isn't it? But I think the other element here is how quickly the marriage starts to go sour. let over that a little bit. She says that was around about... Ben Sinister, so only only really a couple of years into the marriage. They married yeah. in 83. She describes recording Ben Sinister as a miserable experience and, th- and things that things started to go wrong between them around then. So I think it's worth noting that. They, they get a female tour manager at one point, which seems to help, and later on she, Marcia joins, which helps. She she of course um, had been in Khmer Rouge, a band which had supported the fall previously with her husband, yeah. then husband Phil Schoenfeld and Klaus Kaskenkjöld again. Mm. She She tries to find female allies at this time otherwise she's pretty isolated Uh, there's some really interesting stuff um, Cruiser's Creek story by now is is quite well known, she talks about that Mm -hmm. Um, it was this book, though, that meant I could track down which ship that was and to actually identify the actual library and find the plans of the ship. It was a good find. That was a good one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm proud of that one. And also the Vixen, um, the song Vixen, um, I might, uh, the, if you're interested in this, go to the annotated fall entry for Vixen. There's the I, I identified what I believe to be the documentary she saw as well and got hold of a right, copy. Yeah. On VHS so but but yeah so I, th- I think it, it just is interesting despite the connection that she and Mark formed it's not long before things yeah she doesn't go into a huge amount of detail of no.
0: the ins and outs but she does paint a pretty clear picture that he's not particularly present and he's off in the pub all day so he, yeah and, back and that his
1: drug with. use becomes a problem at this point yeah
2: so. and the, 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 when they're in the studio and things like that nobody would directly confront Mark and uh, she also says people were scared of Mark they wouldn't approach him uh, so that's the, the kind of like the ghost ring her to, to sort of access him and There was a bit of all that made me laugh in here. was it a bit about translating mancunian uh, to a grandparent they go on the <laughs> cruise right I, I, yeah i, yeah, I, I use translation uh companies uh work and uh, I, you know she kind of like cornered the market though because i've never seen them offering a service to translate mancunian yet
0: no, it's, it's one of the more difficult languages isn't it around this time she starts up the adult net, which is, um, you know, again, one of the reasons why she was going to come over. Matt was going to be this Fengali. They were going to get her a, a solo deal. It started as a pretty small side project, apparently. And then back they by the Smiths. Yeah, originally back by the Fall. And then her, the next yes. lineup was back Second. by the Smiths, right? Where, or three that yes. weren't Morrissey and Mars. So, uh, and they did incense and peppermints. It talks about feeling like an alien in press, which, and yes, yeah, she talks about Mez not cooking. He'd, he'd be on t- Tea till eleven, then beer, then whiskey as the mood darkened, and he'd spend the day in the pub. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't sound like it doesn't sound too pleasant when they're on tour in the studio, but it certainly doesn't sound very pleasant when they're not there. So the fact that she it was a couple of years. Rather than a couple of months it in itself shows that there was definitely some deep uh, connection and relationship. She does describe him initially as her soulmate. So that's mm-hmm. the very first thing she, she talks about. And she talks again here about how Mark creates that drama to wrong foot us and, and make us vulnerable, which put us under tension and made us work harder. At, at what cost, right? You know, then the speeds rotting his brain and he would deliberately undercut Lecky, And we talked about this in the, one of the last few episodes about the end point. Ben Sinister were, yeah, that psychedelic side of Leckie Smith had totally had enough of that. He's now starting to just undercut that, and he brings out what she describes as the idiotic megaphone, although he'd used that previously as well.
2: I quite, I quite like the bit where she's going, the I always felt sorry for the tour manager, because uh, he always got the brunt of everything, which kind of reminded me a bit of uh, Spinal Tap when the complaining to the tour manager about the bread. <laughs> it's too small! Well, I, I can imagine Mark Smith... Um, yeah, no, it'd be interesting to to meet some toll managers that have dealt with him. Like, uh, there'll be one or two stories there. That, yes. Oh, the record. <laughs> Mark Smith had psychologically tortured the victim until he'd fuck off. Talking about trying to get rid of band members. The, the, the bit where she was going on about him, uh, like, going to the Instruments of Torture exhibition and him being, like, really enthusiastic. My recommendations for that kind of thing Lancaster Castle's not bad, but Chillingham Castle in Northumbria is brilliant you you can go in there and just play with everything it's like dungeons and guns and swords and all sorts fantastic stuff i think i've been there yeah yeah it's great but yeah also gets into the uh, in god's name book as well that gets a a mention in the uh, 85 86 chapter
1: yeah i've got it over there just finishing it this i suppose it's the last bit section of the middle section of the book i think for me as i was reading it, it all seemed to be about the decline so the way the way the the rise the fall and the rise of the book so you know and you kind of think well but it's kind of the fall the rise and the fall as well in the, in a way but um but this section yeah you see, it starts off so positively and she's got yeah she's you know she's finally got her pop career and and all of this and it really goes horribly wrong quite quickly um, it's also really really quick and and and, and she really doesn't like friends experiments she, she Ben sinister she didn't enjoy making but, but friends' Experiment, she regards as um, awful. I cannot accept. I'm not going I, to I agree. I, 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 the thing is, I guess we, we're we're going to hear it differently anyway. But um, there there are some there are some people who will hold that up as a uh, as a great pop album, and and other people who don't. I think it, I think it's a good album. I enjoy listening to it but I guess if you've had to be there to make it, it's going to...
0: Yeah, I think there was some projection there because she talks about how the audience switched off when they played Oswald's defence lawyer, which I I think, really, if you're in the fall audience, that's not the one that's going to turn you off. Maybe if they'd done On This Day or something like that, maybe, but... um, I quite like On This Day as well. Yeah, it's very little that would turn off a fall fan, to be honest. It's not going to bother us, is it? No, No, people visit, bring it on, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But she said there isn't one definitive fall classic on an LP, whereas as athletes cured guest informant and friends, which I would all I would say are, but I will I will take your point absolutely. She's viewing it from the inside, and that is a is a very, very different perspective. And and Marcia talked about it as well on the on the old brother, her experience to, um once they get into Curious Our Range Friends and especially Seminole, which I think she describes as the worst piece of
1: shit she's ever worked on. Yes. Most of the songs went through,
0: round one.
4: <laughs> Almost yeah.
1: You get near the end here when MES announces to Bricks that he's leaving her. Um, yeah. And and uh, clearly is prepared. He's got the getaway car driven by Simon already out, uh, outside and the suitcase already packed. And and the way Bricks writes that, you get a very clear sense of, of the panic that she felt when that happened. Although it was clear the relationship was not going well and was falling apart and the subsequent parts of the chapter talk about finding out more evidence of of his infidelities um, and she starts to piece it all together and you know one of her best friend Lisa betrayed her by finding this out and not telling her but it must have been well it comes across as an incredibly traumatic experience she, yeah. again the matter-of-factness that she will say
0: that she uh, mm. she was depressed and that goes over that in, in a sentence but obviously that was months and months of her in that pit in that in that depression and not knowing because this this didn't take place over a couple of days. This was like we said that decline was over months and possibly even years and then she's you know she talks again about the eating disorders coming back and her and this uh, spiraling out of control and, and mark looking at her with hate and it's it's just such a awful i mean we know some of this before reading the book you kind of know that it didn't end well but it, it's yeah it's it's really grim stuff yeah, her mom says this is the best thing that's ever happened to her and and in many ways you know it probably was I mean that that creatively no although that looks like a, that had gone as well but you know in terms of personal life yeah absolutely like that did not seem like a good place to be
2: we get into sort of like a saffron and cog sinister and uh you know like that sort of setup at the end of the truth part so Craig sees a ghost he <laughs> <laughs> a ghost
1: more ghost stories, yeah. I guess the next chapter after that is is—is she's split up. She's starting to date again. She takes full advantage of, it turns out. Good for her. The comment there when her mum says to her, this is the best thing that's ever happened to you, I, I think there's some wisdom in that. I, I think... Um, she was kind of expecting mum to say, well, I told you so, and all of that. And and actually, yeah. her mum gives a much more supportive answer, which is exactly what Bricks needed to hear at that point, I think. This is at the point at which she then starts seeing this Jungian therapist slash astrologer. Um, she says... Astrology seemed like science and spirituality mixed together. It's not, though, is it? It seems, <laughs> seems like
0: is, in a, is the key word
1: in that sentence. Whatever, whatever you're mixing up, it's not including science. She says that this wasn't some random column in a newspaper making sweeping predictions about a star sign. This was my personal chart. Well, if you believe in that stuff, uh, fine. It's obviously nonsense, as I can't say, to
0: Phil every week. But the thing is that, OK, what is important is it may be Gave her a sense of hope at that time, or 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 something to structure to move forward. Even though, as I said, strangely the message seemed to be, "You're in the middle of like a decade of shit, and you've still got five more years to go." Which, looking back when she's writing the book twenty years on, I'm sure makes a lot of sense. But that. If if that's how it played out, that cannot have been a very pleasant thing to hear when you're already uh, one of your lowest points. But she approached it very positively in the sense, like you said, she got the non-Morrissey and Ma Smiths on board and uh, Craig Leon also went on to produce The, the Fall and was had a, a Ramones connection. She... Uh, Got Clem Berica Blondie in, and they also got it on a few times. Yeah, yeah. Quite... Bl-
2: Blondie, the yeah. band named after Hitler's dog. Is that right? Check that. No, Hitler's dog was that. called Blondie, but I
1: don't think the band Blondie was called. Yeah, after... <laughs> no, that's <laughs> the... I thought the band was named after that kind of comic character. In it these was.
0: Titles. It one hundred percent was. So do, do not uh... listen to anything else. It says um... Hitler's dog. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> Mark, this is apparently one of the sources for the five hundred dollar bottle of wine story. Which one of them, pointed, I, one the one of them,
1: plausible one. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah, and it turns out that she wasn't actually fired from the fall she just didn't show up for the next tour even though she'd presented some songs for the next album which which would have been extra k, right? But um um she felt really unprofessional for not turning up for the tour, but that was the decision that was the line that she she was drawing.
1: It was an it was a German TV broadcast, wasn't it? That mm. January the following year. And there's video of that and and it's her guitar tech who's playing guitar on that. For quite some time we were trying to find out who that was and in the end uh, I think it was on the fall for and um, uh, we worked out as a, uh, who that was and it was her guitar tech and mm-hmm. he'd had to stand in because she hadn't turned up at the airport So that and that was the end but she was still technically in the band for quite some time after splitting up from Mark, yeah.
0: In terms of that, where someone stands in, Again, that's another really unique thing about The Fall where, like she describes multiple times where Mark would put songs into the playlist that they hadn't rehearsed and hadn't for years. And hopefully one of them would know enough to get it started and then the muscle memory would kick in. I'm guessing this is what would happen, right? Somebody knows the drum beat or the or the bass riff or whatever and everybody else falls in around it and it's like i think there's a really uh, another really unique approach you don't hear many bands who are like here's the set list and Marsha describes it and when she joined the band like she was just told here are the songs we'll be playing them and then the set list changed every single night which is it keeps you on your toes
1: that that is interesting i i, I didn't really believe that this happened so much but then i've been doing a lot of work on gigography over the last few years and and you do you look at the the lists bear little relation to the tapes so even even where you might have the same set list from gig to gig they didn't actually play it and it it, is it it does seem to be true that they didn't play the same songs in the same order every night ever or almost never it's it's incredibly right it does help if you're trying to date gigs but um but it's remarkable. I, I I, mean, I've never gone into it in detail with any other band, but I find it hard to believe that there's many other bands could or would want to do that. So, for example, James Brown's band,
0: he would give them a signal or a symbol of what song they were going to play and what they would transition into, but they were drilled in that song. They knew yeah. it. They were fined if they made a mistake uh, whereas this seemed to be like smith's just throwing the song at them knowing full well that they are very unlikely to know it and just seeing what what transpires listening to those <laughs> gigs they hold together very very well there's almost none of them where you're like oh this is like a group of amateurs just trying to piece something together no they make they they sell it every time
2: but they- Ben, do you think it's like it goes back to the uh, quote where it was the uh, psychologically torture the fuckers uh, until they leave kind of thing? So it's, it's like spring a surprise on somebody, and they, you know, if, if they play it shit because they don't know it, so it gives you reason to criticize them, doesn't it?
0: Well, apparently he does. He did give them notes as she describes them, uh, which is him uh, diatribes after they play. I think that's referring mostly to. When she comes back the second time but i'm sure he was doing it all the way through so then i think the last little bit to do with 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 the fall on Mez is that he turned up at her apartment to, uh, a little while later begging to be let in and and um she, she let him stay in and said there's going to be no there's going to be no um, funny business and um you know they kind of lay next to each other for for a while and then she said it was very very sad and it was years before she saw him again so that was kind of the end um, mm-hmm. And then very quickly, Nigel Kennedy comes onto the scene, did which you know, I, I, did, for some reason, I didn't know this the first time I read the book. And it was just so bizarre that, like, a page after leaving the fall, she's like, and Nigel Kennedy, the punk rock violinist, who's now going to be like the next third of this book, but uh, we will not spend as much time on this part, I imagine, as we have on the previous.
2: She does mention that a, a person, like he was on about name dropping. I remember Murray Walker being asked who the most interesting person that he'd ever met was. His response was Jim Rosenthal. So he gets mentioned in it.
1: <laughs> I like Nigel Kennedy. I, I I think he's funny. He's a very cool character, and he, he comes off
2: not
0: too bad when you compare him to. Smith, but he, he comes off as quite possessive in the relationship and not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily the healthiest relationship, but she seems to have a lot of good times with him and, and and compared to some of the things that she went through earlier in her life, I think this relationship at the very least seemed uh, mostly um, taught positively about it.
3: Um, yeah,
1: she describes him as a child and being quite childlike. Uh, she kind of explains that by saying that he has to be so drilled in, in, in to play the music he plays and so in control of all of that, that that he hasn't got time to control everything else. He can't be bothered with your petty rules and regulations. Yeah. Which
0: makes a lot of sense, and and um...
2: yeah, playful side to him as well. Like, because he, he goes on about the uh,
1: freewheeling
2: game, where we're just like freewheel down hills. Uh... Oh yeah, <laughs> <It> don't <laughs> sound as much fun as Julian cops brick game that the teardrop club used to play on. So, where somebody would check brick, and then you know, it might be you that the brick's gonna hit you on the head. That that's another one to keep you on your toes. Good game rum, of brick
0: rum stuff, isn't it? So, anyway, she she talks about being invited to Aston Villa and seeing the oozing testosterone of David Platt. Um, the Million Pound Violin And and then of course Nigel Kennedy He releases the four seasons And he becomes like his moment So she's on the scene At the perfect time to uh, enjoy that And then this weird Very long Gary Lineker kind of part oh, of the God. story which I'm going to read the bit because it was delightful <laughs> and there's no way this should even be in Gary Lineker's autobiography but it's in Brick Smith's so they're, they're at the Italian 90 they've been invited to the England camp she orders vodka with lunch and Gaza spies it and she gives it to Gaza she gets carpal tunnel syndrome she starts writing with with a Stephen Tintin Duffy of the Lilac time goes to America with Nigel and meets Yo-Yo Ma and it's just boom, 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 boom and, and, but for, uh, amongst all of this she's invited to Gary Lineker's house smashes all of his Dalton Royal Dalton figures, his wife's, with, with a cricket bat, um, doesn't take make the top 40 with her first adult net, single, then she comes to Italia 90. Gary Lineker is having tummy trouble he told us before the match that he had a tur- turtle head on deck his guts were groaning and he felt <laughs> wind building off in his intestines he tried to fart and to relieve some of the pressure it was worse than he thought when he farted he followed through in a huge pile of semi diarrhea squelched into his shorts he didn't know what to do poo was dripping down his legs bear in mind this is the bi- biography of the guitarist from the fall um huh. He dragged his ass along the pitch like a dog trying to wipe himself. This did little good as his shots were fully loaded to the brim with messy cack. And actually, the video is great if you've ever seen it, because he mouths, I've shit myself to the other players. You can see it. It's brilliant. It has no place being in this book
1: whatsoever, but it is beautiful. Thoughts? <laughs> It's another example of wild tonal shifts in this book. It's, it's just, again, you wouldn't see this coming. You wouldn't, she didn't have to have mentioned it at all. But it's <laughs> Not in for there. three or four pages of it. It's in there, I and mean, at length, <laughs> and in detail. It's, <laughs> yeah, think, it's amazing. The, te-
2: the technical phrase for uh, wiping your ass on the floor, like Gary Lineker was doing, is yachting, if you check the Profanosaurus.
4: <laughs> okay.
0: So uh, thick and fast, she does the, She meets Donovan, does a cover version of Hurdy Gurdy, which if you've watched the video of her on the on the Late Show with Gay Byrne, that's something to behold. Nigel Kennedy, Donovan, and Brick Smith with the with the band, the backing band, doing a version of Hurdy Gurdy. Good Lord, she describes it as the beginning of the end, and I, I agree with her. Is this. her relationship i guess with nigel is is kind of troubled at times she's he, he's quite jealous of her phonogram drop her because her singles are i think three singles have not troubled the charts at all and it sounds like she she's kind of lost her commitment to it maybe she wasn't putting describes maybe not putting the effort and she's spending more time on her relationship and she describes it as an identity crisis you know she she's the most famous that she's ever been is Nigel Kennedy's kind of girlfriend, the paparazzi climb climbing the fence and she starts to have these panic attacks. This is when that very weird story with Mickey Mouse, who starts trying to court her while she's at the Disneyland, which is very, very strange. All the money is gone from her account, and they say, we tracked it down. She obviously doesn't go into the details because there's there's something pretty dodgy going on that she does not want to throw anyone under the buzz, I, I, I think. She describes an altercation with, with Nigel, which again, she doesn't really go into, and then it's all over our relationship that is as a as a fall fan who's here ostensibly to talk about briggs's involvement in the fall that is a barrage of really really interesting stuff lots of highs and lows for it we really enjoyed this part because it was just so much weird madness going on but you know we're two and a half hours into this so we probably don't want to spend too much time
1: i just i just noted a couple of the things just not tonally because <laughs> as she goes on about uh, nigel's neck at one point he's got a horrible growth yeah. caused by the violin Ooh. pressing against it which is not dissimilar to her human bite neck problems earlier on uh, because the human bite apparently is potentially deadly yeah the bacteria and saliva but then but then she throws in and, and you kind of think people have this image of her as a real hippie but she's talking about bodily functions and football players it's like i say she's just a complete mismatch of types of person And she talks at one point here when they're living in Malvern um, with Nigel. Sometimes I would ride Lucky, my white pony that Nigel had bought me. And imagine she was a unicorn, I was a maiden, and we were all on some medieval pilgrimage. In the next chapter, you've got this story about Gary Lineker, and it's just—is <laughs> this the same person? And I was also interested that um, Phonogram, when they dropped the adult net, tried to blame this on Kennedy. They didn't want to deal with Nigel Kennedy's stipulations about his violin that was on there. Um, but she, she's pretty clear that it was just an excuse to blame it on him. And yeah. she, she ends this bit as saying, "I now had no job, no purpose, no band, no record deal, no inspiration, and no hope. My self-esteem was flatlining."
4: Yeah, it's a,
1: right. tough times, right? And it's and and then you have the whole Disney World weird Mickey Mouse thing going on. Yeah, and then we're into part three of the book.
0: It's part three, which we won't spend a huge amount of time on it. Mostly, it's centered around Gokwan, Guan. Which um,
2: one thing? One thing I learned, and I didn't know in the full circle chapter, you, Katie Popcrit used to be uh, one of Michael Clark's dancers before we
0: move move into. Uh, part three, I'm going to play a few tracks that are pertinent to this era. 2 by 4 peel session version, uh, Disney's dream debased, and uh, the original version of incense and peppermint that uh, breaks covered with the adult neck. So as we get into the third part, yeah, she's casually dropped that to her childhood best friend is Susanna Hoffs from the Bengals. She almost got the job <laughs> on the wood. And then I really like the fact that she puts her CV up there, which is graduated high school, worked in Fiorucci, dropped out of college, rock star famous person's girlfriend so she becomes a waitress and then that really interesting weird story where she's serving and then the band james are in the restaurant and recognize her and everyone's a little bit uncomfortable but she says that that was
1: the moment that forced her to make peace with who she was so there's one of those sentences that i've enjoyed throughout the book there haven't been a few uh, many of those sentences in recent chapters but there was one here where it says and it's you just kind of think did you ever read this to yourself? She says, my favourite moment waitressing was filling an order for Bert Bacharach.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's just... I was a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: just... <laughs> I do love the randomness of it, though, right? That's just yeah, the thing, That's right? what it I is... like about it. It's just... absolutely. it's Well, Smith's book wasn't linear in the sense that, that all the parts didn't fit together in chronological order. This is linear, but then just has such random... Tiny little left turns and then gets back on it. It's a, it's a delightful read
1: out there, listener, if you're still with <laughs> us. <laughs> It's it's kind of you couldn't make some of this stuff up, could you? I mean, she she ends up moving into Susanna Hoff's old garage. That she had another stalker who was leaving notes on trees. It's really disturbing. Yeah, yeah. But they never find out who that is. She has to move out of where she lived, I and mean, she gets on better terms with Nigel. It seems, and is allowed the use of his one of his homes. She f- fixes the stalker problem
0: by having a relationship. X. Well, originally, this dude X was just going to be a bodyguard, but then she started a relationship with him huge steroid man who was then who then also became a, um, a worry and thankfully i think they separated she,
1: she describes him did you notice as freakishly and painfully endowed
0: yeah i thought that was a good <laughs> sentence yes
1: <laughs> yes but that didn't last very long, I don't think.
0: No, no. And it seems like it actually got got a slightly earlier place beyond that, where she, she almost got a job with Sean Penn. She was a nurse on a soap opera for a while.
1: There's so a right... lot of almost getting things, isn't there? She nearly yeah. does this and almost does that. But she keeps but it, trying. She doesn't give up.
0: No, no. And over the course of like a year or so, she does all of these different things. She she, she does the acting stuff. And then she goes on tour with Susanna Hoffs. And during that tour, she meets a, a singer called Freely Johnson, who's a fall obsessive, who then... Gets her to re listen to all the stuff she recorded and other false stuff, which in turn leads her to call Mark, say that she forgives him for cheating and says she would work with him anytime.
1: Uh, it's astonishing, isn't it? That, that nothing happened straight away. Mark was clearly completely taken aback on her account. It wasn't um,
0: too long, though, I don't think. It wasn't. No, it, not,
2: not long. Uh, the whole thing
1: was interesting because, uh, yeah, every uh, yeah, True. It, it was all you about
2: on the podcast
4: yeah. a while ago, yeah. yeah.
0: We had out, and he did say that he had other stories that he might. There's a, he had his own version, but he wouldn't tell it on screen. And I never followed up with him. Maybe, maybe we'll get that story another time. It's such a weird story. Like, again, this is one of the ones that you, you might take with a pinch of salt the idea that she's she's invited to stay over at Courtney Love's house. And then she wakes up in the middle of the night and the carpet's on fire. And Courtney Love slumped over a computer mid text to Billy Corgan. And she puts out the fire. Courtney wakes up and says, come and get in the bed on Kurt's side. And then she sleeps there. She then immediately hit with a quite serious health scare, it sounds like, which she then gets over. And on the way home from the treatment, she's expecting a call from Courtney Love. But instead, it is from Mark Smith saying, come back. And uh, she does. And she says she is not prepared for the state that she found them in post-middle-class revolt. Yes, so she is back post-middle-class revolt. She comes back on the scene just in time for Cerebral Caustic. Danny? Oh, he's done it. He's on mute. (laughs) Now you're definitely part of the gang.
1: Oh. Oh... Well, she she says that the fall she joined at this point point were not happy campers, so um, which is clearly the case. It's interesting. She talks about her use of rehypnol at this point. She attributes to a, a a sense of sexual freedom which she indulges, and good for her. She talks about meeting Murray Lachlan Young, who seems to have been significant to her. She has quite a few what seem to be healthy relationships at this point. She the really likes him, men, right? Yeah. He's a, a men, poet, him.
0: right? He was he had his moment in the nineties. I yeah, remember him. I think
1: him. so. Yeah. She she definitely. Definitely sees that things have deteriorated in the fall, that Mark's not operating on all city cylinders. It takes for a little while to see quite how ill he appears to be he's having seizures and delusions and things like this and some of his behavior at this point is really quite disturbing to her and to anyone reading the story as well some of this we wouldn't have known anything about until um, even even um the hints of it uh, that are in steve's hanley's book which preceded brix's mm. uh, stuff in there you kind of think oh and and it's corroborated in brix's book clearly not in a good place you can tell by the gigs and the records at the time too but um, bizarre love triangles between mark and lucy rumour and julia and so on but it all leads into her meeting philip start which is clearly a a whole new chapter for her he's significantly older he's 17 years older than her when she meets him which which you can kind of see she spends her life in destructive relationships with men that she sees as similar to her father in many ways but philip starts old enough to be her father but actually is her escape from that cycle interestingly
0: yeah, she's very positive the whole way through right to the end of the book about him that's so great to see right and that is it the rise really part is. is a lot of these books are once the music's over once you've done your your moment in the sun it's kind of the the downward spiral and she obviously has some of that but it's really great to see this last third she seems really happy through a lot of it she is not happy with her time her second stint in, in the fall again she comes back and it's a professional relationship and we talked about this the other week it was it was smart of her to say i'm back it, but it is a professional relationship i will come up, play the gigs uh, but even that, uh, after a while, you can only keep that for so long with with someone who sounds like they're in the state that Smith was in by that point of just drinking it and being abusive. Craig had lost passion, she says, and and he talks and she talks about how Smith, when she says she has a bad back, he he hits her, and there's there's all this awful kind of physical. And um, verbal kind of abuse of, of everyone around.
2: She talks about um, sort of hangers on earlier in the book, really, like people that were bad influence on, on Mark Smith. Uh... With various uh, mind-bending drugs and so forth, yeah. get, well, it gets into the uh, the the, the story they story. The, the way in a, a, an airport somewhere for like some festival, but, and uh, there's another band that, that tries getting on like a rap band. And Mark's kind of like get away from the bus life, very confrontational with them. So it's not just his own band that he's he's like that. where it seems like it with with everyone. Bad that game.
1: story is is quite the same one. He's clearly not well. But, and he's reacting in a deliberately confrontational and destructive way. I mean, the phrase he used, get a, what was it? Get away from the bus boy. That yeah. language is as explicitly racist language. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure that other stories would suggest that's not really what he is and who he is. But mm. um, given the depths that he was in, that he kind of lashes out in that way and gets himself uh, thoroughly beaten up as a result. See, he does the, a great yeah. gig
0: does a great gig but if you look at the playlist on that day the band that
1: fits that bill is rage against the machine i don't think it's them isn't it not the brotherhood
0: or somebody like that but i was like wow he really pissed off that band because then they went to the hotel right and she says hanley steve Steve hanley wakes the mob in the night and she says she's never seen him like this he's like we gotta we gotta go um the band are here and they're looking for, for Mark. And then, of course, the next day they find him, they give him a good hiding. And then he does a great gig. But I've heard stories like this about Smith, that he got a fair
1: share of good hidings along the way. And it's not a surprise. Um, I mean, he I- sometimes seemed to deliberately put himself in that position. <laughs> You get that sense, saying to people, "Hit me, hit me," you know, and stuff like this.
2: I can't remember which song it is off Extra Care, but the the one where it was going on about got pestered in a bar.
1: That's Bill is yeah. dead, isn't it? Bill is yeah, dead.
2: Yeah, so like, I mean, that's going back to like 1990, like that. He was he was like uh, probably a hobby that he he got into, and they got very good at.
1: Definitely not Rage Against the Machine. I think somewhere um, we identified who that would have been. I, okay. I think... So Bricks gets her boyfriend to go, uh, Philip start
0: to go and get her money off because she's supposed to be getting five quid a gig and smith's no, no longer paying her and then that story that you kind of alluded to where he's got scabs on his hand and i haven't heard that story before and he's feeling that this disabled person he'd had an interaction with previously he, he was worried about a disease it's like i mean you want to be careful of course of of taking that as said because that is a very very disturbing story very very yeah. um, I, um
1: i think that's clearly a delusional state that's not him really believing you know in a, sure. in a kind of yeah, yeah. presidential way is it that that comes from a dark mental state and, and
0: she describes herself breaks at this point that she's Again, uh, the eating disorders have come back and she, she's she's not in a good place herself.
1: I spotted another quote here, which I thought was another of those tonal shifts. You kind of think, um, and it's about scabs. And She writes quite entertainingly and beautifully about scabs. He says, scabs are endlessly fascinating to me. The remarkable way that the human body can knit its wounds is like magic. It's like watching time lapse footage of a flower blooming and then dying the ugly sandpaper melding of dried blood and skin cells morphing into a new, soft, smooth surface. I've never seen anybody else write about scabs like her. No, it's, it's beautiful what she decides to turn
0: her attention to. and uh, the, yes. the... So she does describe in quite a lot of detail what happened the second time she left the band, which was the final straw, basically. They're in Motherwell and Smith's losing his shit at everybody. Uh, he, he gets there. Apparently, Smith's got an obsession with every bit of Gafferty tape from the previous band has to be taken up and so all the bands setting up they're all doing they're all spending ages getting everything right and you know that we know the story about the fake kick drum mic and all that stuff to avoid Smith's kind of uh, interference uh, he gets the monitor it's not good enough for him the vocal monitor so he throws the mic stand at the engineer like She's a not spear ha- like a spear and bricks is having none of this so she screams at him don't you do that he grabs her bag and throws the contents across the stage washing dirty laundry in public here but this is the part for fall fans that I just didn't know Any of the details of this And it's it's Bricks comes off Well in it She's Most We know what she's have,
1: capable of Physically yeah, Don't we exactly. With her roundhouse yeah. gigs
0: And she just loses it And she gets her A guitar And starts swirling A guitar at him They meet in some kind of clash Which she does not Describe in detail He gets the guitar Smashes it on the ground And she goes She doesn't Play the gig But she's persuaded To return for the final gig Where she didn't
1: Astonishingly Yeah, yeah.
0: She didn't Ooh. have any the interactions with smith she played the gig and that was it she said goodbye at the end to the fans and that was her
1: instead of, of good night yeah, yeah so and that, she that's the end say of good night,
0: night. Exactly. Yeah. That's the end of her interaction with the fall. That's that's.
1: So that's kind of it, other than her television career subsequently, which, in which I had very little interest in reading about, to be quite honest. Ooh, and um,
2: pugs. Don't Let's not forget the oh,
1: pugs.
0: Here's why I'll, I'll, I'll indulge her, even though for me yeah, it wasn't particularly interesting, but uh, she's writing this book partially for herself. And so for her able to get that story and I think to be able to say, I'm living the, my best life here you know so, this is her she opens a shop she's she's loving it she goes on for pages about being a jeans expert and she she yes. But she loves it. It's her fashion. She's indulging herself in this file. She's got the money from her husband to write on these shops. They're successful. They open a bunch. And she starts writing songs again. And she does she releases a couple of of, of things. She she eventually gets on to what my mum knows her best for, which is Gox Fashion Fix. And I remember I didn't I hadn't heard of Bricks for years. And I remember watching it and I'm at my mom's house and, and I'm like, that's that's Bricks out the fall. Yeah. Why is she on Gox fashion fix? Like on a run showdown runway. My mom's like, who, what, why? <laughs>
4: yes.
0: I enjoyed that. And uh, I did enjoy this part of the story because the first part was so heavy. So many bad relationships. So many horrible things that happened to her all through the fall stuff as well, even though there were high points this is a, it was nice, it was lovely to see this last part I imagine she is still doing to this day in some way, right? And she, and we also know that after a chunk of time, later 2015, she started uh, reconnecting with Steve Hanley when his book came out she's writing more this. They, they do um, Bricks and the Extricated where they did three records and some nice stuff, stuff on
1: those records. Actually, she, um, it's a lovely ending to. Yeah, I, I think um it is, isn't it? I It's kind of, of less interest because of that, perhaps. But, sure. but it, I think she can't, you kind of feel like she deserves to be happy for a change. Yeah, yeah. She hmm. She's clearly has had a lot of ambition. She's been opportunistic. She has a, deep belief in her own ability and her own right to be whatever she wants to be and believe she's good at it. She quotes people who've over enthusiastic about her, lots of praise for her, she includes in the book. But but you you get the sense that she's fought for what she's got. Um, she's been lucky, she's had some privilege, but but she hasn't collapsed at any of the points where other people may have collapsed. And I think, you know, I don't like giving credit for to people for for that kind of you know what i mean it's kind of it's an odd thing to say in some ways but yeah i absolutely have such a lot of respect for her and for her life even though i don't necessarily enjoy the music she produces solo i think um I, i'm glad that she's able to do that um i guess the i mean the epilogue to the book talks about a final effort to contact smith and he doesn't open the door to her but it also talks about Uh, forgiving her father and being adopted by marvin late in life obviously and 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 then of course we know post the publication of the book um extricated go go on to do a couple of albums as you've said Um, and then and then she's done uh, gone on to re-release some of the old music because there's an opportunity for her here to have that heard properly some of it wasn't and now she's um recorded another album with um with youth um, which, yeah. Again, I've heard. I don't particularly like it, but she's doing what she wants to do, and 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 that I think is is great. You know, I I suspect she's never going to be the pop star she really wanted to be. Now it's too late. There's some bad luck, but but she seems to be happy doing what she's doing, and she's had that belief in herself to get there. And I I think whatever I think about her kookiness, she yeah. absolutely has been as hard as nails on top of it.
0: Let's play a a few more tracks. So what I'm going to play here is the old version of Bonkers in Phoenix. We've talked many times in the past about what Smith did to Bonkers in Phoenix. And the audio can be very interesting. It's a very good thing to listen to. But it's such a disrespectful way to treat somebody else's song. It is like the worst way to shit on someone else's creative. So we'll listen to the alt version which actually um, you can hear Brix's original pretty nice song you know Then we will listen to Orangina which is off um, Lost Angeles which was recorded 20 odd years ago but only came out like last year And uh, a little bit of Gox Fashion Fix as well why not
1: in Birmingham and backstage the pressure's mounting. Right, this is it now. But who will reign over the runway? The audience will vote which collection they like the best, but they don't know which of my high street or Brix's designer. So let the show begin. Past and counted and now it's time to find out the all-important results.
3: Right,
1: and- Bricks is now gonna read out who has won this week.
0: Or any last thoughts, reflections on, on the Bricks book?
2: Yeah, it's all over the place isn't it? It's, you know, I, I wouldn't actually be surprised, and I'm not saying this disrespectfully in any way whatsoever, if she's got ADHD it, it is, it's just sort of like one thing to another, to another, to another, like you know, and she's just, you know, can't sort of like stick with one thing for too long before she's moving on to the next.
0: Speaking as a medical professional there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of respect for from this book. She's been through a lot and she, these ongoing kind of issues that, including Her relationship including the the eating uh, disorders she's been creative along the way in her own way again i agree with you a lot of the music she's made and and her fashion stuff it's not of a great interest to me but i respect that she's doing it and um she made Wonderful contributions to the fall when she was there, except for Cerebral Caustic, which was awful, but she gets to pass because everybody was terrible on that record. But no, I think she was a, a fantastic addition to uh the band and gave them, said this again a bunch of times. She would she appeared at the perfect time when the when the band needed somebody to take them into uh, a new direction. and so we love you, bricks. Thank you. I'm sure, you're listening. <laughs>
1: And um, keep doing it. Keep and on it. keeping on. Well, I, I was just going to say that um, just on the Bonkers in Phoenix issue, do we really think, although I agree that, it, you know, it's a pretty nasty thing to do, to take a song that's quite sweet and then do what you did with it. But actually, it works as a thing. I don't think the original song would work as a fall song. Whatever else, you might you know, it just isn't. You couldn't put that out on a full record, could you? No, I think
0: we're. I'm kind of playing both sides here, to be honest, because <laughs> I actually think the bongus and Phoenix is really interesting, and I totally agree. When I heard the alt version the first time, I was like, "Yeah, this is kind of like one of Brix's songs off her albums," and it, it, there's absolutely no way that that that's appearing on a fall record as is. And you can see those songs, like you can see how she would have fit really well into Hole in. 2097 because
1: that's the kind of stuff they were making you could also say that the sound of bonkers in phoenix with her sweetness overridden by strafing is a bit like this book
0: (laughs) (laughs) a beautiful way to tie it all up so we'll meet back here in two months and it's steve hanley next i imagine and danny are you here uh, that idea of a, of an episode about Roman Total is something I'm oh, very gosh, interested nice. in. So yeah, yeah, let's yeah. let's think about that. Uh, the legend
1: of Roman Total.
0: Exactly. Mm. The uh, the bastard son of Charles the Something and the Great God Pan. I'm up for that. Yeah. Yes. All right. Alistair, thank you, as always. We respect your, your uh, addition to this podcast. And Danny, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Um, Fun as always. Have a good day. And we shall see you all soon.
2: Bye. Cheers. Bye. Uh, how'd you turn it
0: off? I don't know. I'm trying to play this moon song.